0: Welcome, Jacob. Um, welcome to the podcast. Now, you are a chemist. Um, could you Do you want to explain what does that mean to you? How would you define a chemist?
1: Well, there's a bunch of different types of chemists. I would say I would narrow it down even further, I suppose, down to I'm an analytical chemist. So analytical chemists are concerned with how much of something is in something else or what it is.
0: Wonderful. And uh, what do you specialize in, in terms of... Um, studying the things that contain these chemicals
1: yeah uh, for most of my career i've studied near surface analytical chemistry so uh, here we do more structural chemistry so solid phase analysis but uh, for most of my career it was corrosion paint systems um, metal failures mostly that kind of thing
0: okay uh so not just rocks then
1: not just rocks, no. In fact, uh, until I came here, it was almost purely manufactured materials.
0: Speaking of which, uh, how did you get to where you are right now? What, what's your career background and your or your educational background?
1: Yeah, I started out, I did my bachelor's in chemistry at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. I'm from London, like not actually from London, but I lived there long enough that I would say I'm from London. Uh, And I worked after my bachelor's at Surface Science Western, which is a facility associated with the University of Western Ontario that does uh, most of the things that I mentioned, uh, fairly high end in that space. So very, very near surface chemistry kind of work on all kinds of materials and manufactured products. And uh, then I worked for General Dynamics Land Systems briefly, writing technical manuals for armored vehicles. And then I started working at uh, UBC in the Department of Materials Engineering as an electron microscopist back in 2010. And I was with them up until, I suppose it would be 2019. And then I came here to take over for Maddie Bradsepp when he retired from the department.
0: Great. And what are you doing with the department right now?
1: Our facility provides a number of services. So the one that a lot of people might be familiar with is x-ray diffraction services. So we provide quantitative phase analysis by x-ray diffraction on powdered samples. And we allow students to come in and do that themselves. We provide some training and we provide the service both academically and commercially through the lab. But we also have what's called an electron microprobe analyzer which uses an electron probe to stimulate x-ray emissions from samples and then you can measure the x-ray emissions to tell you exactly how much of various elements there are in your sample at a very small scale non-destructively. So that's, that's, there's a few different vectors there but uh, the non-destructive is one we don't dig any holes in people's samples so you can put them in the system and we don't destroy them. Uh, we get fairly low detection limits so it's a very very sensitive instrument and it's high spatial resolution, so it can go submicron. So when you compare that to some other techniques, a lot of other techniques use a laser, which means you're limited to the diffraction limit, which is usually about a micron. Uh, we can go much, much smaller scale than that. We also do scanning electron microscopy. And scanning electron microscopy is a bit like a microprobe, except it's a less specialized type of instrument where you just use an electron beam to poke around and take images of your sample.
0: So you're figuring out the chemical composition of of specimens by um, seeing how the light interacts with them?
1: Well, the electrons. So x-rays, yeah. X-rays are generated by bombarding matter with electrons. So you accelerate the electrons really fast, it knocks out some electrons from the sample, and then there's a collapse, and then a photon is emitted. And those photon emissions are quantized, and they're specific to transitions that are unique to
0: most elements. Why did you go into chemistry? What inspired you to go into this field?
1: Well, I'm not really sure. Uh, like most people who were entering undergrad at the time, I was very, very confused about what I wanted to do with my life. I actually started off in sociology and philosophy and then wound up in the sciences. And chemistry just seemed to fit the bill. I've got some chemists in the family. My mom's a chemist. My dad's a chemical engineer or biochemical engineer. So it seemed fitting in a strange
0: way. Wonderful. <laughs> um. Now, I've noticed when in talking to most people, uh, most career paths are very rarely um, in a straight line. Um, You know, there are setbacks. There are, you know, you go up in one direction, then change directions mid-career. Has any of that happened to you?
1: Absolutely. So uh, my job at Surface Science Western was cut short by the contract freeze that came along with the Great Recession back in 2008, 2009. So the university fired everyone like they it was a very strange time they said if you're on a contract you're not coming back so if you can imagine they didn't even do that during the pandemic they they said everybody gets to stay for the most part Uh, so it was it was a very strange time and that lasted for quite a while and that's how i wound up writing technical manuals for armored vehicles which is a very strange divergence in one's career path as a chemist absolutely yeah, um, I can tell you all kinds of interesting facts about armored vehicles, though. So there's there's side benefits. Yeah, it's, it's...
0: Like armored cars or tanks?
1: Oh, light armor vehicles. So have you ever seen? Do you know the Burrard Bridge? There's the barracks just before the Broad Bridge on the south side. Oh yeah. Yeah, and there is a eight wheeled um, LAV. That's a light armor vehicle. That's made in, in beautiful London, Ontario. Oh. So that, I I don't know which variant that system is, but it's probably like a LAV-3, which was current with Canadian forces up until, I think it's still current. Uh, There's probably quite a number of them in service, but those vehicles there, those are made in in Canada, in London.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's kind of neat.
0: Now, um, with your work, uh, you're constantly searching um, through these samples. Um, Have you ever found something weird or or something that uh, surprised you? I actually
1: found argon one time. So so that's, that's kind of fascinating because uh, there's a lot of things in electron microscopy that will pretend to be argon. So we use detectors that are sensitive to a number of different artifacts. Uh, but an argon is um, a noble gas. You wouldn't expect it to be anywhere near a solid sample. It, it shouldn't be. Uh, but we, we found actual argon one time in a it was an iron carbide film. So I forget how they were doing the deposition. I think they were doing what's called sputter deposition with methane as the working gas to develop or to deposit these argon or these iron carbide films. So um, iron in the presence of carbon forms all these various carbides uh, and what you'll see is that's what makes steel hard. And that's what gives steel variability in being hard. And usually it's the carbon content that is the difference between like a door panel on your car and a kitchen knife, for example. That and the little bit of heat treatment that determines how hard the carbon is going to be. So this was kind of one of these experiments to drive it to the extreme. So these were super saturated iron carbide films. And they had been doing the deposition in this this process gas mix of methane and argon. So as the film was growing by sputter deposition, so you bombarded a pure iron target with uh, these atoms of, of argon and, and methane, and it would knock off some of the iron, which would then kind of deposit on everything in the chamber. And on the target material, you wound up with these uh, super saturated iron carbon films. But also embedded in there was a little bit of argon. So it was it was physically entrapped within the film. So that was that was somewhat fascinating because Argon doesn't want to be there. It doesn't bond to anything. It's a gas. It shouldn't be hanging around, but it showed up and it was in a fairly substantial amount. It was almost one percent by mass.
0: Was it a a natural film or manufactured? It was manufactured. Okay. Some of the most entertaining stories I've come across in this podcast have nothing to do with the work itself. Uh, That story uh, was very interesting. but yeah, do you have any fun uh, workplace stories you'd care to share?
1: I don't know. That's a tricky one. We've, we've done a lot. Um, it's okay. No, no. I mostly have repair stories, and they're not—they're not what you traditionally consider entertaining. Oh, and then we found the fuse that was blown, or then we found the wire that was—that was broken. Or
0: what breaks down the most? Fuses or wires or?
1: Oh, it's—it's it's usually a fuse. It's always a fuse. Check the fuses first. We did uh, for in materials engineering, we had way too much time on our hands and we did wind up setting a couple of metals on fire, which is always interesting. So the machine shop over there was always worried about setting magnesium shavings on fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. To the point where they would always worry about working on magnesium. So uh, we had one grad student in particular who was tired of this and wanted to find out exactly how flammable magnesium was. And it took a lot, Uh, you know, it takes a torch and it takes fair bit of effort to get the, the turnings to actually go up. And then to actually get them to start burning and not just sparking is is an extra special level. We had to juice it along a little bit. We added uh, oxidizers. So we added, um, I think we were adding potassium nitrate to the mix or we may even been adding some perchlorates. So some, some fairly strong oxidizers. And then when we couldn't get it going just like that, we added titanium, fine titanium powder. So we were making fireworks. We were making fireworks in the fume hood. And it didn't go wrong. It 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 all ended quite well. We we set some fires, we had some spectacular little explosions well contained within the fume hood, and it was an entertaining afternoon. So magnesium, everybody talks about it catching on fire. I think you really have to work at it.
0: Which uh which metal has the prettiest flame? You know,
1: titanium was right up there. Uh it's this pure white. Even the magnesium like this really pure white flame, like eye-scaldingly bright, <laughs> don't stare at it kind of thing, <laughs> which I guess is why they use it for fireworks. I guess they, they wind up using titanium powder and uh, magnesium in, in fireworks a lot of the time. That's fun. <laughs> it, was, it was a blast. If you ever find yourself with too much time, a fume hood, and a couple of kilos of titanium powder, I can recommend how you should spend your time. <laughs>
0: This is certainly not what I'm normally talking about on this podcast, but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> well,
1: usually usually the rocks are already oxidized, so nothing exciting can happen to them.
0: Right, right. I guess so. Yeah.
1: yeah and all the really fun reactions in
0: the world are oxidation reactions. Speaking about fun, um, I'm curious, what is, what's the best part of your work? You get to look at a lot of interesting things in an SEM.
1: So an SEM, everybody loves, loves SEM pictures because you get, I don't know if you've seen them, like you get pictures of ants or spiders and you can see their eyes and it's, it's really deep depth of field.
0: What's SEM?
1: Like the scanning electron microscope. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So when you, you, this is where you see all these classic images of like a, a spider magnified and you can really see all of the, the depth of field in it. So uh, it looks like it's almost like a 3D image. Or it makes them look giant. It's uh, it's spectacular. So you can see all the little creepy hairs on the spider's head, or on a fly, you can see the fly eye with all the little compound uh, lenslets. And that's that's always a blast. So people are always bringing something that they want to shove in the SEM, and usually they you can find something entertaining to find on there to look at.
0: That sounds like fun.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a blast.
0: I'm not sure I'd like to look at a, a giant. Um... well there's other things
1: yeah 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 i the bugs creep me out um some people like the bugs i prefer you can put in a watch mechanism that's that's always a fun one um so an old mechanical watch or even something with gears in it so something where if you looked at it and you're trying to watch say the hour hand move by eye you'd never be able to see it but you can load a watch movement in an sem and you can see it just screaming along at high magnification so you can do fun things like that in an sem as well
0: now uh, i've got the inverse question what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work
1: uh the most challenging part of our work is minerals aren't cooperative they're not tidy chemical systems so when we're doing x-ray diffraction um one of the challenges with x-ray diffraction is it's the only face sensitive like truly face sensitive technique that's out there and uh I don't know if you've ever heard this said about democracy. It's, it's the worst political system in the world, except for all of the other ones. Yeah, X-ray powder diffraction is a little bit like that. It's it's the worst one in the world, and there's nothing else. You know, except for all of the other ones. There's there's nothing else. So you really have to work with what you've got, and the systems are incredibly complex. Uh, I've never seen a pure mineral outside of like even quartz has a little bit of titanium in it. Uh, So that's always challenging. So trying to fit, um, trying to quantify and fit uh, natural minerals to what are normally pure uh, structures that you have. So they're always a little bit different or a little bit out there. They're never quite what they should be or what they say on the box. So that's in in some ways manufactured materials are, are very straightforward. When somebody gives you a chunk of silicon, it's a chunk of silicon, there's nothing else in there. It's, it's six or seven nines silicon. Uh, so that's that's one of the challenges.
0: Nature doesn't fit into the textbook always. <laughs> exactly,
1: nature doesn't fit into the textbook. You take all the, all the elements on the planet, you melt them all, you wait for them to cool, and wow, whatever's left over, you get to analyze.
0: And we've actually uh, benefited from you studying some of our, our specimens in the, the museum
1: yeah yeah and uh, vice versa you have some some exceptionally high purity specimens that we've been using as kind of reference standards. It's been great to have that available to us. It's a fantastic resource.
0: I'm curious do you uh identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities and if so, do you feel like that's impacted your study or, or your work? No, I don't belong to
1: any underrepresented my my community or my my niche is very well
0: represented. Do you feel like your field or um your workplaces have been really uh, insular or more open and welcoming to outsiders? I would say they've been fairly well
1: uh, welcomed to outsiders. Except for the defense job, naturally, that wasn't particularly welcoming to outsiders. Uh, They might shoot you if you got over the fence. (laughs) Right. But but yeah, everywhere else in, in all of my work in the academic community, it's been very, very welcoming, I would say.
0: One thing that everyone's had to to deal with uh, this year, especially, has been COVID-19. So I'm curious, um, you must have been impacted by the pandemic. Uh, Were you able to keep working or? um... Well, we were able to keep working after the hard shutdown ended. So there was, I forget
1: if it was the first three or four months there where they literally kicked everyone out of the department and said, you're not allowed to come in. So we could work on what we had. But our workflows require physical access to the lab. So we need to grind up samples and load them into diffractometers, or we need to be able to load samples into the SEM or the microprobe, things like that. So um, that activity stopped for those first three or four months. And we were just working from home, doing not a lot, quite frankly, except driving each other crazy in the group. Uh, when we finally got back onto campus, we were able to resume some limited operations and I got very good at remote operating the scanning electron microscope over Zoom. So you kind of share the screen on the data processing computer and data collection computer and you point the webcam at the live view on the screen and that worked fairly well for some people. In fact, we might keep doing it for some people that don't want to get on a ferry over from the island, for example. have some remote clients that would probably prefer the remote workflow. Even people in town here don't want to cross a bridge. I could see them wanting to keep up with that workflow as we move back into the office. But yeah, that was mostly the challenge. The lack of physical access was a real killer for us.
0: That sounds really interesting and really fun uh, playing with an uh, SEM um, (laughs) over Zoom.
1: Yeah, it, it works pretty well. They would have to point at things and we would have to kind of gesture and say, oh, yeah, you have this over here. Check this out and like this and kind of tap on the screen. And they go, yeah, or no, that other thing to the left. So it worked. It worked surprisingly well uh, with newer electron microscopes. They're actually trying to add that uh, capability out of the box. Oh, nice. Kind of. Yeah. Um, some because, you know time on these pieces of equipment is is expensive and some people want to be able to remote operate it because it's a microscope i mean you can't rely on the guy on the other end to find what you're interested in right Mm -hmm. it's always no they looked at the wrong thing no you had this sample upside down there's always there's always some catch like that so remote operations are are kind of the one of the things that the field perpetually pokes at with the problem being that all the software is usually three or four generations out of date and isn't allowed on a network anymore for fear of it getting a virus <laughs> the current sem runs on i think nt4 which is insane
0: <laughs> how old would that yeah. be
1: that would be probably the late 90s oh wow okay yeah because that's predates windows 2000 which i'm assuming came out in 2000 probably came out in like 1999 something like that so it's, it's before that wow <laughs>
0: Yeah. Now I'm also curious, uh what kind of background or courses would you recommend uh for someone who's listening to this and wants to follow in your footsteps?
1: That's kind of a tricky one. Uh we're supposed to be offering one here in Earth Ocean and Atmospheric Science. There's supposed to be uh USC, I believe five twenty-one that's going to be uh that was in place for a number of years. Maddie gave it up and there's been a hiatus and I'm supposed to be picking it up again, and doing micro microbeam methods for uh, geology. So we'll see if that comes back. Um, there's Materials 451. That's over in materials engineering. They offer a materials analysis course, uh, some microstructural analysis, which is a pretty good analog. There's a lot of hands on time with electron microscopes and, and an X-ray diffractometer over there. Um, I believe there's a mining engineering course But I'd have to look up the course code. I don't know it off the top of my head but Maria Halushka teaches it and it depends on what the application is. So the mining engineering focuses more on the extractive kind of things. Um, Materials engineering focuses naturally more on on manufactured products and we would focus more on um, silicates. So the mining engineers are, it's kind of the same application except the mining engineers are interested in Pricier metals or pricier phases, whereas the geologists are interested in, in silicates and things that can give you more ethereal kind of knowledge about a, a sample, <laughs> rather than yeah, metal
0: value. This is why I like talking to non-geologists. Sometimes they, um, yeah, <laughs> you're explaining the, the geologist a little more to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, they love they love silicates. Mm. Uh, <laughs>
0: What uh, what was the most important uh, course that you took when you were studying?
1: Um, advanced logic.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, so uh, it's usually offered in the philosophy department and they teach um, fallacies. They teach derivation of arguments. They can teach you how to take natural language and put it into what's called a sentential logic. And you can try to take a statement and disprove it. Uh, but it's it's uh it they don't teach a lot of it in science. you'd think that would be in in a couple of first year courses like here's how to think, but it's it's not in there uh They just start with assuming that you know how to think already so so advanced logic was very, very useful. so there's usually a couple of courses in the philosophy department that deal with
0: that, yeah, that makes total sense that yeah, I could see that being on the curriculum. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, I'm surprised. It's it's all logic gates like it's 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 you'd think it would be in computer science or or in or in first year science somewhere. But uh, no, I, for whatever reason, it wound up in the Faculty of Arts and Philosophy.
0: As you were going through your, your studies and your early career, did you find anyone who was really inspiring?
1: Yeah, we had a few people, actually. Um uh, I had a couple of people that I worked with uh, at Surface Science that were, that were great. One of them was uh, Dietmar, Dietmar Fischter, and he was their instrument repair technician. Uh, and Dietmar was great because he would just dive in when an instrument was broken. Uh, they couldn't afford to have it down. And uh, what that teaches you is that there's not magic behind the panels. There's, there's a lot of, especially now, when we've moved to kind of a service contract, the manufacturer knows best kind of workflow for a lot of instrumentation, you get the impression that uh, if you open up that panel, you're going to find something mystical that you probably shouldn't touch. When in reality, if you open it up, you'll see how the system works and you'll find out that a lot of the time they kind of did it cheaply and parts of it are like, oh, well, I see why they have fancy panels on, on this thing because the insides are cheap and, and garbage. So uh, opening up panels is, is massively valuable, and Deepmar kind of taught me to just dive in.
0: It's funny, I actually call my computer my magic box. Um.
1: <laughs> yeah, because if you, if you don't get in there and poke around, yeah, you would get the idea that, wait, well, computers, in some ways that is magic, <laughs> right? I mean... I think the chip shortage right now is showing us that. Everyone's explaining how semiconductors work. And you're like, oh, my God, I don't know how semiconductors work. Even semiconductor engineers don't know how semiconductors work. <laughs> Have you been impacted by the chip shortage? I was trying to buy a new video card. And it's, it's, it's challenging. They're very, very expensive right now. And you can't get one. So, yes. <laughs> I think we've all been impacted. I mean, even used cars. I'm trying to sell a used car right now. Uh, and it's going for more than I would have thought. And people are like, oh, yeah, you can get this much for it. Really? For this car? And it's it's the chip shortage. Um, oh. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a fantastic whiplash thing that's happened there where manufacturers at the beginning of the pandemic, they canceled all of their semiconductor orders. So all of that capacity was filled. And then when the manufacturers were like, oh, no, people want cars during the pandemic, what do we do? They were already kicked to the back of the line. So it's... it's huh. It's interesting how much of our lives is, is semiconductors now.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we're learning so much of our our lives during the pandemic, um, how little we, we knew before.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it turns out you can't buy a toaster without it having a, a microcontroller in it anymore.
0: Now, in your lab, uh, do you work with any students? Yeah, we work with graduate
1: students a lot of the time. We get some undergraduate students that come through on uh, coursework every once in a while, but mostly
0: it's graduate students. Uh, do you ever recruit them or?
1: Yes. Every once in a while, we have somebody come in and grind samples. It's not the most <laughs> exciting work, but we pay pretty well. Uh, so we usually like to pick up somebody that we trust and know already to do sample okay. grinding.
0: Yeah, I was just going to ask uh, what you look for in, in students. but
1: uh, They have to show up on time and they have to be able to grind samples.
0: It sounds like a, a great job after a, a stressful day.
1: <laughs> it's a terrible job, but it pays well. I mean, yeah, <laughs> we, we pay very, very well because we know it's a terrible job. It's boring. Nobody likes doing it. So, at least the compensation is pretty good.
0: Looking to uh, the longer term, uh, what would you like to be the, uh, your legacy when you eventually retire? I mean, you've only just started with us, but um,
1: yeah, I think that's that's a good. Uh, that's thirty years off.
0: Um,
1: I don't know. All I could I could give you like a ten year legacy. Sure we can do a 10-year legacy, because, uh, you know, I don't know, am I going to be in a flying car 30 years from now? What's what's life going to look like? Is the planet going to be a cinder? <laughs> where, where are we? My legacy that I want to see in the next 10 years is automated workflows for mineralogy introduced to the department. So we, we've already done a little bit of a, about that. So uh, I've explained a little bit that electron microprobes and SEMs can do kind of uh this, this, you can poke around and find out what's under the beam, right? So you can tell the computer to just do that for you in, in a limited respect. So what you get is on a polished specimen, uh, the number of electrons that are reflected or not reflected, but, you know, for simplicity's sake, bounced back from the sample is usually proportional to the atomic number when you're using a backscatter detector in the SEM. So if it's brighter, it's heavier. If it's uh, darker, it's a lighter element. And you can tell the SEM to go through and scan field by field on your thin section and then point the beam at each one of these different uh, gray levels that it finds and tell you what it is. And then stitch it all together and map it out at the end. So that's not that new, it's a technique that's probably been around and applied industrially in uh, extractive metallurgy for, I want to say like the early 2000s, it's probably when it came up, but the systems were prohibitively expensive and you had to buy a turnkey system. It had to be integrated, like tightly integrated. So you weren't buying an SEM and an EDS detector. You were buying a mineral liberation analyzer or a quantitative, uh, uh, they called it QuemScan. They had all these brand names for it. Uh, but what we've seen recently is there's a couple of software packages that are platform agnostic. So you can buy an SEM from your vendor of choice, whoever your vendor is, there's four or five out there. And as long as you buy an X-ray detector that's compatible with this one software package, then you can turn your SEM into one of these mineral analyzers. So that means our SEM currently does it, our 90s vintage terrible SEM does that right now. Uh, An SEM that we're going to be installing, hopefully within the next three months with a larger chamber, also does it. And it'll do it faster and better. But we're also getting a new electron microprobe in the lab, so we're getting a top-of-the-line field emission electron microprobe, and we've convinced the the, the writer of the software package to do the same thing for the electron microprobe. So the electron microprobe will be able to go through your thin section, find out what phases are where, and that saves you a lot of time looking around. So a lot of the time uh, students come in and they have the thin section, they've spent, you know, 20 hours looking at it under a polarized light microscope and they spend another 10 hours on the SEM kind of poking around and they probably only imaged or probably only focused on you know a couple of square millimeters of the sample so we want to open that up and give them more data to choose from to find those areas of interest and be able to target them for more detailed analysis so that's I want to bring these automated workflows into EOS
0: wonderful on a broader level um... One thing that I've noticed, we've all noticed, is that um, our fields, our professional fields are changing at lightning speed. Um, And often the the, uh, career that you start is very different by the time you retire. You're doing a completely different uh, workflow um, or completely different job, even though you haven't actually changed jobs. Um, Where do you see uh, this kind of work going in the future? And what advice would you have for young people who um, maybe want to get ahead of the curve?
1: I don't think they'll entirely replace analysts on the XRD end. Uh, but the quantitative XRD that we do right now is just ripe for disruption by machine learning. So it is, It is. you know, It's if you threw a, a large enough cluster at it right now, you could probably do a pretty good job of, of replacing an analyst with a big enough training data set. I just don't think there's anybody with a large enough training data set right now to replace an analyst. Uh, but yeah, machine learning is going to be a big deal in the X-ray pattern diffraction space, because even though minerals are complicated and they are, they pick up you know, um, site occupancy variances here and there, uh, they're not well-defined, a machine will still be able to make as good or better sense of it with a good enough training data set than uh, an experienced operator. So, I think that's that's yeah, at least the machine will be taking a first crack at it and doing a good job within the next 15 years. So, we're going to have to worry about that because our, our service that we fund the lab with will be replaced by <laughs> a particularly smart cluster. And uh, what's the name of your lab? For the Electron Microbeam and X ray diffraction facility. Hmm. It's the EMXDF. It's a terrible acronym. I love it. I'm, not, I'm an aficionado <laughs> of terrible acronyms.
0: And do you take uh, clients from just the general public? We'll take anyone that walks in the door. Wonderful.
1: Yeah. Um, we will take clients from the general public, with exception. <laughs> there's always. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. I'm sure you've met some of them. It's, it's, yeah, no, I mean, like, uh, there's there's I found this wire in my field. Is it from an yeah. alien spaceship? Uh, there's, there's a yeah, but yeah. Generally speaking, we'll take anybody that walks in the
0: door. Yeah, everything's a meteorite.
1: Yeah, everything's a meteorite. Um, or, I have some horrifying stories that I'm not going to tell on a podcast.
0: <laughs> no worries. <laughs> okay. Well, Jacob, those are all the questions I had for you for today. Um, is there anything I missed? Anything you want to add before I let you go?
1: No, I don't think so. But uh, with the department opening back up again, everybody should come down and kick the tires when we get our new instrumentation. You should at least pop your head in and go ooh and aah at the pretty <laughs> the pretty panels, even if you don't pop them off and take a look. Maybe we'll have a, an open panels day where we'll just take all of the side panels off the instruments and let everybody take a, a peek inside. That could be kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. Except on the XRDs where you might get irradiated, just lightly. Uh, we'll, we'll try that out. Uh, but yeah, if anybody ever has any questions on how the machines actually operate when you come through a lab, don't be afraid to ask them. Yeah, probably more information that you ever want to know about how SEMs and microprobes work.
0: Well, thanks for sitting down with me today, uh, Jacob, and have a great rest of your day. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Have a great day there. Thanks for listening to Honor. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.